Now, we're in Psalm 83 tonight. Psalm 83. And just a summary, if you're trying to sum up what the Psalms are about, there are 150 chapters. And a reminder, they are songs that are written, written for worship services. But there are some themes that we find throughout the Psalms. And I guess you could say the major theme is this. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So if you read the Psalms regularly, you will be reminded that when times are good, you should trust God and worship God. And when times are challenging, you should trust God and worship God. That's a continual theme throughout the Psalms. And John Piper speaks of these being worship Songs, when he writes, the Psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with what? Emotions, not just thoughts. Have you ever thought about that? The reason you're an emotional being is because God made you with emotions. Now, the fall has corrupted our emotions, right? Uh, Because we are sinners by nature then uh, we don't always handle our emotions appropriately, and sometimes our emotions get the best of us. But we have emotions because God gave them to us. We are created in His image, and uh, the Lord wants to redeem emotions in our lives. In other words, when, when the Lord saves us, He gives us a new heart, right? And you can, you can uh, experience your emotional life in accordance with that new heart. You can begin to, to, to enjoy and experience emotions in a godly way. And so uh, he says that God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And that's why we love the Psalms, right? Because we resonate with the emotions we find in here. You name any emotion, you can find it somewhere in the Psalms. I mean, it's somewhere. Anger, uh, joy, uh, perplexity. Uh, I mean, it's, it's somewhere in depression, uh, it, it, it's it's in here somewhere, and so we certainly want to uh, understand that and and learn how to. And here's what the Psalms teach us: they teach us how to bring our emotions to God, right to to His feet, to His throne in worship. And so that's why we love the Psalms. So, Psalm 83. What is Psalm 83 about? I've titled this uh, lesson surrounded surrounded this psalm was written in a context when god's people were surrounded by enemies as we read the psalm we instantly can make some application to our own lives as god's people today because we find ourselves surrounded by people who are anti-god and we'll talk about that as we see this psalm unfold but look there with me psalm 83 verse 1 is a song a psalm of asaph uh, that name Asaph is important because I'll show you that in a minute to help us establish maybe the context of this psalm. But Asaph was a worship leader in the time of David. He was a music minister. He was the Travis of Israel, all right, to kind of get in mind who he was. Here's what he writes. Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom, the Ishmaelites, Moab, the Hagrites, Gibal, and Ammon, and 
Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, Selah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Now this psalm probably refers to a situation found in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Here's the reason we believe that. Uh, Second Chronicles chapter 20 speaks of a coalition of nations that came against um, Israel, uh, actually against Judah and King Jehoshaphat. And in the early part of Psalm 83, we see there is a, uh, a, a conspiring of nations there in verse 5. They conspire with one accord against you. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom, Ishmaelites, Moab, Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon, Amalek. So just like in Second Chronicles 20, there we see these nations getting together. And notice Asaph wrote it. Now, hold your place, but turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20. And hold your place in Second Chronicles. We're going to go back and forth to Second Chronicles several times tonight. But Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 14. I want to show you somebody that makes an appearance in the story as this vast coalition of foreign nations comes against uh, the people of God. It says there in verse 14, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of who? Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. So some family of Asaph were here, and so certainly Asaph could have written um, about this with some firsthand knowledge. And so this psalm probably refers to the situation found in 2 Chronicles 20. That's what most scholars believe. That's what's being referred to here. And, and what we see is the people of God surrounded by people that want to destroy them because they are anti-God. So what I want to do is I want to give you four thoughts about opposition. Four thoughts about the opposition that God's people face. Just like the people of God in the Old Testament faced constant opposition from other nations, we face opposition as Christ followers in our society today. And so there are some, some definite parallels that we can see and some things we can learn about how we face and stand against opposition. So let me give you four thoughts about opposition that God's people face. Number one, and this is so important for you to understand, opposition to God's people is driven by opposition to God himself. Opposition to God's people is driven by opposition to God himself. So look what it says there in verse 1. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies, they're God's enemies. Your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you, those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. So why, why are they lay, laying crafty plans against God's people? Because they hate God. You see that connection there? Because they hate God, they are coming against God's people. And that's the way it was. That's the way it always has been. That's the way it is today. God's people experience opposition because people hate the God we serve. Their real issue is with him. 
I read an article I had saved today, and it was about a story from 2016. And basically, at a um, an Air Force base, there was an Air Force officer, and he simply had his Bible open on his desk, and it caused this huge uproar. And people were writing letters and complaining and saying they felt threatened by the open Bible on the desk. And it was this national news story, and there was an investigation launched, and and just because he had a open Bible on his desk. And people said, people said, other people in the Air Force said they, they were scared. They were, they were scared of that environment. And I thought, well, what happens when they really face a bad guy? Right? But, but why the uproar? I mean, why, why does an open Bible cause people to lose their minds? Because people fundamentally have a problem with God. Not with that officer, it's with the God that he represents. You hear these stories all the time. It happens here in Mississippi, uh, another one in Florida, a uh, college coach in Carolina. These coaches that are Christian coaches, and they may pray before a game, and people lose their minds. What, what's this coach doing? Praying, you know, like that's, that's a harmful practice, right? What's the issue? Why are people so enraged by, by public prayer? Because they have a problem with the Lord. That's the issue. You need to understand that. And that's, the, that's what it means. Listen, when you sign up to follow Jesus, you're going to experience hardship because you follow Jesus. Now, let me show you that from the Scripture. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaks to this in the famous Beatitudes. Matthew 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Watch this. On my account. Why do people persecute and revile Christians? On, it's on Christ's account. It's because they have a problem with Jesus. So they turn their fury on jesus followers uh, turn with me to um john gospel of john chapter 15 to another passage jesus jesus speaking what he says about this john 15 verse 18 The Bible says, if the world hates you, this is Jesus talking, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In other words, if you're living a worldly life, no one's going to have a problem with you. But it's when you begin to live differently, when you begin to follow the principles of Christ. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, for nonconformity, the world whips you with its displeasure. And when you begin to not conform to the world because you are following Christ, you will experience the chastisement of the world. That's what Jesus says. He says in verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so Jesus is very, very clear. If you're my disciple, if you're following me, expect opposition. 
Expect people to persecute you, to come against you, to treat you wrongly, to revile you, to speak evil against you. That's part of what you sign up for, Jesus says, when you follow me in a, in a decaying world. What's the issue? Opposition to God's people is driven by opposition to God himself. So, what is it? Well, I was thinking about this. What is it about the God of the Bible that people find so offensive? What is it that bugs people so much? About, about folks who say, I believe the Bible, I worship the God of the Bible, I worship Jesus Christ. What is it that bothers people so much? Well, this, this is not an exhaustive list, but I thought of three words I think really boil down uh, the, the factors in a lot of people's lives as to why they are so opposed to biblical Christianity. First word is the word accountability. Accountability. The claim of Christianity is God has spoken the Bible, right? Truth with no mixture of error. 66 books breathed out by God through human instruments. So we have the very word of God to man. And in this book, the Lord defines for humanity right and wrong. And hey, we need to say this in our society today. There is a such thing as right and wrong. There is truth and there is falsehood. Why? Because God has spoken and people understand if I if I sign up to follow the God of the Bible, then I've got to take seriously what he says. And I don't, I don't like what he says. I don't want to be accountable to God's standards and God's principles and God's precepts and God's commandments and God's rules and I don't, God's laws. I don't, I don't want any of that. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want God to start... Messing around with my life. I kind of like my life the way it is. I don't want anybody stepping on my toes or telling me how to live or expecting this, expecting that. And, and people have problems with what God says. And they know, hey, if I'm going to say I believe in God, I'm accountable to God for whether I embrace his truth or I run from his truth. And accountability is one of the reasons people don't want to worship the God of the Bible. They don't like what this God has to say. Another word is humility. Think about it. Humility. Jesus said, it's not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, Jesus said, for you to get saved, you need to understand that you're sick. You'll never go to the doctor if you don't admit you're sick, right? And he's saying, you'll never reach out for a savior if you don't realize you need saving. That was one of the problems with the Pharisees. They didn't think they were sick. In fact, they thought they were the only ones that were well. They thought everybody else had a problem, not them. They thought they were righteous because of their righteous religious acts. And Jesus is saying, you're missing it, guys. You're sick. You need a physician. In fact, you need the great physician. That's what Jesus is saying here. And for people to to come and embrace Christ, they're admitting, I need help. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I can't save myself. And, and frankly, a lot of people are too proud to get to that point. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, uh, Blessed are the, uh, the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that understand they bring nothing to the table. Then he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who understand that I can't save myself, and I'm broken over that, so I need help. That's what the, the Beatitudes are about. And so for someone to, to embrace Christ, to embrace the God of the Bible, 
they have to say, you know what, I need some help. And a lot of people don't want to say they need help. They don't have that humility. That's why the Bible says that God exalts the humble but puts down the proud, right? Let me give you a third word, I think, that kind of sums up why people struggle with Christians and the God that they serve. Exclusivity. This is a big one. Exclusivity. Exclusivity. If we believe the Bible, we believe that there is only one way to be saved. There are not many ways, not many roads to God. You know, it's not just choose your faith path and it eventually gets you to the same place that every other faith path will get you. That's a prevailing sentiment in our society today. It's called pluralism, which basically says choose whatever religion you want to choose. And it's all kind of a different version of the same thing. And you'll all get to the same place when it's all said and done. So just kind of be sincere about your faith and you'll be good. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible teaches there is only one way to the Father. Jesus said it. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the only way to be saved. That is a statement of exclusivity. And, and people aren't comfortable with that. And for people to embrace Christ, the true Christ, they've got to say, Jesus is the only way to heaven. I was reading about Charles Darwin, and, and, and Charles Darwin, who began to drift away from the things he learned growing up, he even studied religion in, in college, Christianity, uh, but he began to walk away from the truths of Christianity Really, when he, the, the, the departure for him was when he began to doubt the beginning of Genesis. When he said that the, the beginning of Genesis is a myth, it didn't really happen, that's when he departed from uh, any semblance of, of being in the faith. He was not a Christian, and he walked away uh, from that. Uh, but he made a statement to this effect. He said, you know what, if, if I, this is later in his life, he said, if, if I embrace this Christianity, then I'm admitting that some of my loved ones who did not embrace Christianity, aren't going to be in heaven. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't make that leap. Because he did not want to deal with the issue of exclusivity. There's only one way to be saved. And so, I believe that's one of the reasons that people really struggle with Christians who say they believe in Jesus and his teachings. So, the only way, now this is important, I'm going to help you out here, maybe, maybe not, all right? The only way to avoid the world's displeasure is to distance ourselves from Jesus. It's the only way to do it. Because over in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, here's what the Bible says. It says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What do you think about that? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Maybe maybe a family member, maybe on the job, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe on a, a sports team, it, well, I don't know, maybe in a school. But all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Period. Right? See, see what we need to be teaching is the Bible. And, and, and the Bible teaches that when you follow Jesus, life doesn't necessarily get easier. Sometimes it gets harder. Now, it's worth it. It's worth it. But following Jesus will lead to opposition. Why? 
because people have a problem with the Jesus that you follow. So you can avoid some of this if you'll just kind of distance yourself from Jesus, right? But look at the next phrase. This is not an option for faithful followers of Christ. Distancing yourself from Jesus, keeping your faith on the down low, is not an option for faithful followers of Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 8. Luke 12, verse 8. Jesus' teaching here says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Strong statement, isn't it? If you don't stand up for me, Jesus is saying, don't expect me to stand up for you when it's all said and done. Strong statement. If, if you and I are going to be faithful followers of Christ, listen to me, distancing ourselves from Jesus is not an option. Have you heard someone say, my faith is a private matter? Have you ever heard someone say that? Raise your hand. Listen, I, I, I'm not being ugly. You will not find that in the Bible. There's no verse that encourages you as a Christian to keep your faith a private matter. It's the exact opposite. <laughs> Really is exact opposite. Now the Bible doesn't encourage us to be weird and and uh, unnecessarily offensive and and uh, bombastic, but it tells us to let our light shine, to be salt in a decaying society, to give evidence for the for the for the for the hope that is within us, to give the reason for the hope that we have in Christ, to be witnesses of what Jesus Christ has done, to share our story, to tell His story. I mean, it's all over the Scripture, right? All over the Scripture. You'll, you'll not find the idea that our faith is a private matter. And so, distancing ourselves from Jesus is not an option. We're going to follow Jesus, stand for Jesus, live for Jesus, speak of Jesus, and just understand when you do that, there is a price to pay. There is a price to pay. And I believe as our society changes in the coming next couple of decades, I believe there's going to be more and more of a price to pay, even in our nation. And so, opposition to God's people is driven by opposition to God himself. And I might um, qualify that last statement by saying, apart from an, uh, an awakening, a third great awakening, which we need to be praying for revival in our nation. Amen? Number two, opposition to God's people is driven by opposition to God himself. Number two, God's people, when opposed, God's people should rest in the power of God should rest in the power of God. Now look back with me in Psalm 83. I want to show you this. Psalm 83. What it says in verse 9. Psalm 83, verse 9. They're surrounded by a coalition of forces. days of Jehoshaphat. And they say... Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all the princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. Now, here's what Asaph's doing. He's mentioning some past victories that the Lord has won on behalf of his people. He's talking specifically about Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter uh, 4 and 5. 
and Gideon's victory over the Midianites in Judges 6 and 7. Okay, so he's talking about the period of the judges when God gave his people great victories. Here's the, the deal. Recalling God's past victories will strengthen us in the present. Recalling God's past victories will strengthen us in the present when we face three things. Number one, a leadership crisis. So look in Psalm 83, verse 9. Due to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera, and Jabin at the river Kishon. He's talking there about uh, the time of Deborah and the time of uh, Gideon. So turn back to those passages. Look with me in Judges chapter 4. I'm going to show you how there was a, a leadership problem. Old Testament book of Judges. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Judges chapter 4. Judges 4. People of God are being um, oppressed by the Canaanites. The Lord gave his people into the hands of the Canaanites because of their, their rebellion and disobedience. But look what it says in Judges chapter 4, verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent some in Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. So when the people were oppressed by the Canaanites, God raised up Deborah and Barak to lead them uh, in victory. Now turn to uh, Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Verse 11, Judges 6, verse 11. Now this is when the people of Israel were oppressed by the Midianites. And it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. The Lord said to him, But I will be with you. You shall strike the Midianites as one man. And so again, when Israel needed leadership, God raised up a godly leader to lead them over the Midianites. So, recalling God's past victories will strengthen us in the present when we face a leadership crisis. I'm telling you, the, the major issue, now I want you to hear me on this. The major issue in churches, in Christendom, in politics... In society is leadership. We need godly leaders. And there aren't many of them out there. And so we can look back and say, God, there were times when your people were in a desperate situation and you raised up a Deborah, a mighty woman of God. And you raised up a Gideon and you used them in powerful ways. God, do it again. We need more Deborahs, don't we? We need more Gideons. We need God to raise up some leaders. And, and we look back and say, God has always been faithful in desperate times when God's people are surrounded to raise up the leaders they need to lead them in victory. We need God to do it again. Amen?
Also, recalling God's past victories will strengthen us in the present when we face overwhelming odds. Look in verse 9 of Psalm 83. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon. So he's talking about Midian, he's talking about Gideon fighting the Midianites. Uh, turn to Judges, um, he's talking about Deborah there when he talks about Sisera and Jabin, the fight against the uh, Canaanites. So turn to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. Again, we're looking back at God's powerful deeds. Judges 4, verse 1. People of Israel again did what was evil inside of the Lord after Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. So wait, how do you know how to pronounce that? I just say it real fast. I've learned if you say words like that fast and with confidence, everybody believes you know how to pronounce them. All right. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, for help, for he had 900 chairs of iron. He oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. And so they had overwhelming odds. This, this nation had conquered them. They were oppressing them, mistreating them. They had uh, technology. He mentions these chariots here. And they were using their power and might to oppress God's people. They needed help. So in the face of overwhelming odds, God raised up Deborah and Barak. And again, back to Psalm 83, if, if we're talking about Second Chronicles 20, when they were faced by a coalition of armies, God moved in a mighty way against overwhelming odds. But also, recalling God's past victories will strengthen us in the present when we face unjust treatment. Now turn back to Psalm 83. I know I have you turning a lot tonight, but there are a lot of connections tonight. Psalm 83, look what it says in verse 11. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. This goes back to Gideon and the Midianites. Zeb and Zalmunna were kings in the Midianites, who Gideon eventually tracked down. That's another story in and of itself. He said, these kings of the Midianites said, verse 12, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. So these, these enemies of God's people were treating them unjustly. We want their pastures. We want their land. We, we want to take the pastures of God for ourselves. And so in the face of unjust treatment, we should always look back and say, this is not, listen, when we are treated unjustly as God's people today, we need to look back at the Bible and human, and human history and church history and say, this is not the first time God's people have been treated unjustly. And God has shown his power in the past, and he can show his power again. So God's people should rest in the power of God. When we're surrounded by overwhelming odds, ungodly people, lack of leadership, unjust treatment, we should rest in the fact that God is still on his throne and God has all power at his disposal. Which leads to the third thought about the opposition God's people face. Opposition, how should we respond? Opposition should drive God's people to prayer. Opposition should drive God's people to prayer. Psalm 83, verse 1, look how the, the psalm begins. Oh, God. Oh, God. The word there is El, the, the word for God, which means uh, God of strength. Oh, God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still. Oh, God. So when, when faced with unjust treatment, overwhelming gods, and a leadership crisis, Asaph cries out, Oh, God, do something. Help. Right? And he prays, and that prayer 
is how they respond. Alexander McLaren, in commenting on this psalm, writes, The world is up in arms against God's people, and what weapon has Israel? Nothing but prayer. It's their only weapon. But here's the glorious thing. Our only weapon is our greatest weapon. And I believe, I mean, this is a really big statement. It's a really critical statement. I don't say it lightly. I believe that we'll see a mighty movement of God in our land in direct correlation to desperate prayer. And it won't happen before. We will not see a mighty movement of God in America again apart from desperate prayer by God's people. It's not how God works. We've tried using other weapons, haven't we? And they don't work. Prayer is what works. And so I'm going to give you two ways to pray. When you feel, when you feel like you're surrounded by ungodliness and, and you're paying a price for your faith and they're overwhelming odds and you feel marginalized as a Christian, I want to give you two prayers uh, to pray. Prayer number one is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Again, I believe that's a historical setting for Psalm 83. So turn back to 2 Chronicles 20. It says, Judah under the, the leadership of Jehoshaphat. And there's this large coalition of armies arrayed against them. It looks bad. It looks desperate. And look what happens in 2 Chronicles 20, uh, verse 12. Jehoshaphat gathers the people together. He says, Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? In other words, Jehoshaphat understands if we just go toe-to-toe with them in a military conflict, we're going to lose. We can't win this battle. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. I love this next phrase. And this is a great way to pray. You ready? We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. And I love that. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. I love that. That's a great way to pray. When you feel overwhelmed by what's going on in our society you might pray a prayer like that god i don't know what to do but my eyes are on you and i'm trusting that you're going to move with power in this situation let me give you another way to pray turn to judges chapter 5 back to judges because these stories are mentioned in psalm 83 judges chapter 5 look in verse 31 This is the end of Deborah's song of praise. When God gave them victory over the Canaanites, uh, the fifth chapter is all a a song of praise for God's power and giving them victory. And the way he gave them victory, he sent a great rain and the chariots bogged down in the mud and, and, uh, and God gave them victory. The general got away, Sisera, he got away, the Canaanite general. And it looked like he would live to fight another day and he showed up at this lady's tent. Her name was Jael and and uh, and she said, well, come on in. You look tired. Come and rest for a while. She gave him some hot milk, and she got a tent peg when he fell asleep and drove it through his skull. Man, tell that story at bedtime to your toddler, right? I mean, wow. It's uh, it, But, hey, God was on the move, and you can't stand against God, right? He'll even use a lady with a tent peg to, to execute his judgment. And so... Deborah is singing this song of praise to God for his power that he displayed. I love how she closes the song uh, in verse 21. 
It's a prayer. So, may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. Don't you like that? In other words, Lord, I want to be on your side so that when your enemies perish, we will be lifted up by you. I want to be on the right side, but would you move against your enemies? These are prayers. Opposition should drive God's people to prayer. You remember Acts chapter 4? The Sanhedrin brought Peter and John in after they uh, were used by God uh, to pronounce healing on the man at the gate beautiful in Acts chapter 3. And after he was healed, they began to preach the gospel. People showed up to listen because of the miracle of the man being healed. And the Sanhedrin calls Peter and John in and they say, listen, we're going to let you go. But hey, guys, just, just, just don't mention Jesus anymore. Right? And uh, Peter basically says, well... Uh, I've got to obey God rather than men, and so we're going to just keep preaching Jesus. And, and they say, well, it's going to be severe. The, the consequences are going to be severe if you keep preaching Jesus. So Peter and John go back to the church there in Jerusalem. They tell them what happened. There's going to be a price to pay if we keep preaching Jesus. You know what happens next? The church has a prayer meeting. They don't organize into political factions and say, no, they have a prayer meeting. They say, Sovereign Lord, you hear their threats? Now would you shake this city with power, supernatural signs and wonders as we have boldness to preach the gospel? And the count of people being saved went from 3,000 to 5,000. <laughs> Why? God's people prayed. So, when times look bleak, when we feel overwhelmed by the ungodly opposition around us, we need to pray. Prayer is our only weapon and it is our greatest weapon. And here's the fourth truth about opposition. Opposition to God's people is driven by opposition to God himself. God's people should rest in the power of God. Opposition should drive God's people to prayer. Fourth, when God intervenes on behalf of his people, guess what? He gets the glory. Now look back in Psalm 83. Psalm 83. I love how this psalm closes. Verse 16. Fill their faces with shame. In other words, God, go against our enemies. Fill their faces with shame. Why? So we can gloat? So we can boast? Look what he says next. That they may seek your name, O Lord. That is powerful. God, get their attention. Shake them to their core so they'll understand you are God. And they'll turn to you. That's powerful. Look what he says next. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. God, send judgment until society understands you are the one true God. That's what he's saying. And so Asaph here is praying for God to intervene so that he will get the glory. Now, I'll admit to you, sometimes when I see an opponent of Christianity out there and they're being ugly and they're being malicious, um, you know, I, I want to see them kind of, you know, you want to see them kind of get it. You know what I'm saying? You want to, and, and listen to me. We should pray that people like that would would be shaken to their core by God. So that instead of turning their back to him, they would run to him. And he gets the glory from them. Amen? That's how we should pray. And, and that's the, the, the gist of all of Scripture. For example, let me just take you on a quick tour. Look in Judges 
chapter 4, back to Judges chapter 4, verse 9. Because again, this story is mentioned in Psalm 83. Judges chapter 4. I wish I had more time to show you the connections between Deborah and Gideon. And, but look in Judges 4, verse 9. This is Deborah and Barak. She said, Deborah says to Barak, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are... She, so Barak's going to be the general that leads the troops. Deborah's given the orders, right? She's kind of the commander-in-chief, and, and Barak's going to be the general that executes the orders. Um, she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. You don't get the, the glory. This this woman named Jael is going to use a tent peg and kill the general. Barak, you're going to you're, you're going to be used mightily by God, but no books are going to be written about you. They're going to be written about Jael. You're, you're not getting the glory from this. You, you, it's not going to be about you. He says the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And so he let him know, hey, you're not going to get the glory. Now look over in Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Brock, you won't get the glory. God's going to get it because he's, he's going to show his power by letting a woman kill Sisera. Now look in Judges 7 verse 1. This is when God raises up Gideon to lead the people against the Midianites. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him arose early and encamped beside the spring at Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Let Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. You know what God's saying there? If I let you have victory over the Midianites with this many folks, you'll say it was our military might that did it. And God said, I don't want you to get the glory. So look what he says next. He says, Now therefore proclaim the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount, Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. So they went from 32,000 to 10,000. So they were downsized. You think, well, that's enough, right? Well, Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you, and anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall sit by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Now, uh, I've heard um, some comment on this section that probably... The 300 men who used their hand to cup the water were demonstrating a, a vigilance and an awareness. So, like, if I'm just kneeling down and, and just drinking water straight from the, 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 the brook, then I'm prone to attack, right? But if I, if I kneel down and I scoop up the water and I'm, and I'm putting it in my mouth like that, I'm, I'm vigilant. I'm, I'm on guard. And, and 300 of, those, of, those, uh, of the men did that. And it says... Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. He sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. Camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So God took the army from 32,000 to 300. said, now you're ready to fight. <laughs> 
Why did God do that? He wanted them to understand the victory does not come from your military acumen or your strategy. It's going to come from me. It's going to come from me. And then God gives them victory, and he does it through uh, unusual means, you know, uh, breaking clay pots and lights and trumpets. And it's, it really has nothing to do with military might. And he gives them victory with 300 people. God moves in a mighty way. Why? So he will get the glory. Look what it says in Judges 7, verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. And when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah, towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Mihalah, by Taboth. And so God gives them a great victory, and they don't even do any fighting. 300 men. Why? God is showing his power. He does not want Gideon and the army to get glory. Everybody see that? Why? They don't deserve it. God's the one giving them the victory. And now, one more section. Look at Second Chronicles 20. We'll close with this. Second Chronicles 20. Back to the context of Psalm 83. Second Chronicles 20, 29. Remember, Jehoshaphat cried, We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We're surrounded by a great horde. Look what it says in Second Chronicles 20, verse 29. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for as God gave him rest all around. In other words, when God moved, all the other nations heard about it. Don't mess with them. Their God is awesome. Don't mess with him. He got the glory. So let me give you an equation. You ready for some math tonight? Don't you just love math? And you thought you were done with algebra. I got an equation for you tonight. You ready? Desperate situations plus our weakness, plus our uncertainty, knowing what to do, plus God's deliverance equals God's glory. Can you, could you just imagine after the fight against the Midianites or the victory against the Midianites, can you imagine Gideon going back to his camp and taking credit for that? It had nothing to do with it, right? God did it. And when God moves with power, he moves in a way that he deserves the glory. And we should pray and ask God to intervene and ask God to move in our society and move in our land in a way that he gets the glory. Not the church, but he gets the glory because he's the only one that deserves it. So those are four thoughts about how we should process opposition. And we've experienced it. We're going to experience it uh, because all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But guess what? When it's all said and done... Everybody look at me for a moment. When it's all said and done, God wins. I'm glad I'm on his side. Amen?